All right, everybody. Uh, Frank and I just did a podcast with the great Patrick Smith, the uh, founder and owner of uh, Kafaro International. And before we kick that podcast off, we wanted to talk a little bit about what's going on uh, with the Kafaru forums. Um, the Kafaru forums have been uh, around for a long, long period of time, and it's basically a, a Bible for, for backpack hunting and a huge uh, resource. And Patrick, your essays are on there, uh, a lot of your writings. The blog is happens to be on the forum, my, my blog. Uh, the essays, I think, exist independently. The essays were all done, boy, when, when I just started up Kifaru, and it was trying to explain the reasons for backpack hunting and what I call rambling and, and things like that. The forums came independently of the essays. Uh, the essays were on the uh, website then, but the forums were an independent thing. And there was a lot of, a lot of the same kinds of topics got discussed in much more detail on the, on the original forum. It's a, it's a college course in backpack hunting and rambling and just thriving in the backcountry. Yeah, there's a there's a large amount of info on there, and and what's happened more or less, and this is my fault too, um, as we've gotten larger at Kafaro, we've used other outlets to get the word out um, as far as our gear and releasing of products, things of that nature, and I haven't gotten on the forums, and the traffic on the forums, um, as far as people posting, has is is pretty. It's, it's small. There's not a lot of, of traffic there from day-to-day -day activity of conversing back and forth, uh, but all of that knowledge is still on there. And um, we, I didn't do a very good job. I didn't do any job. We didn't do a good job at Kafaru uh, explaining what's going on. The forums and all of the info on there, we will have them ready, readily available. You'll be able to search them um, from the main page. You'll be able to hit a button and go to the archived forums. Patrick's essays will be uh, in a separate spot. You can click a button as well as other pertinent info. Um, but, you know, our biggest reason with the forums of, of kind of putting them in idle where people can just read about um, all your, I guess, 20 years almost or 15 years. No, it's of, been 20 easily, yeah. Uh, yeah, of experiences as well as all your friends. And um, it's, it's just the, the, the lack of traffic that's on there and the, the maintenance and the, the upkeep. And, and we may kick them back in at some point in time. Uh, but they're certainly not going away. We're not just going to snap our fingers and make everything disappear. You will be able to get on there and read through them. Uh, it's just right now until we get everything updated and a little bit more time uh, on our hands, uh, they're just going to sit and idle, but they will be able to find everything you've ever written on there uh, fairly easily. That sounds uh, like progress is happening. <laughs> Remember how we ended the blog or the podcast that we just finished? Uh, progress does come along. And when I cranked up Kifari and started uh, a website in, uh, uh, being on a website, that was all brand new. Forums were the only social media option then. Gosh, I remember other business owners telling me, you're crazy to put a two-way forum up there. People could say anything they want about your gear. That That's insane. And my response was, we'll just have to be above reproach on, on the gear and customer service and so forth. That was uh, quite a uh, a new thing then, but social media has progressed since then, and it's just 
completely outstripped the old forum. Uh, the, the readership has gone way, way down. And gosh, if you've ever read my Possible's Pouch essay, mm-hmm. uh, I make a clear statement that things write in the Possible's Pouch until you find you're not using them. Yeah. And then they've got to go. And this, this is kind of the same situation with the beloved old forum as far as maintaining the thing and uh, there's so many other options now that are that are also two-way and so I I accept that and it's a big resource drain for the company for 12 people to they're active on it yeah and uh, you know backpacks that sell 12 a year we have to we have to deal with because it's a resource drain to maintain doing it. And so that's what's happening here. And it's, it's, it's still a really good thing to be able to go back and take a college course if you're willing to search that old forum. Uh, a lot of information on there. Things like what's the proper handgun for, for grizzly bear protection. That is covered in great detail. And that's just one example of the available information that still exists on our beloved original forum and that, and all that info we will it'll probably take a week or two but we, we will have that uh more or less a hyperlink or a button you can click to take you to the archive forum on our main website and and i wanted to make sure and i messaged several people on uh on facebook that were posting about this this wasn't a matter um of we didn't do this for any other reason than um you are retired now and are having fun, and Frank and I don't have time to have the interaction, I guess, on the forum that we, we probably should. And at some point in time, if we do, if our time does free up, which does not look like that's going to happen anytime soon, but if it does, the forum would be a great place to, to do that. But what ends up happening is if Frank and I were on there sporadically, we would leave people pissed off because we wouldn't be able to get back on to answer questions and so we focus on other areas where we're answering the questions with a a, a lot higher volume uh it's really yeah, that's where the questions to. are coming from now is these other uh, venues for two-way interaction it's, it's been outstripped by more modern venues as i say yeah but I, I do appreciate everyone's comments and support, you know, personally reading through them. I tried to respond to uh, as many people as I could. And, and by all means, it's it's Aaron, A-R-O-N, at kafaru.net. Uh, if you have any questions or comments, and uh, it's not too hard to get my cell phone number either if you, you want to talk. But but bottom line, we've, we've got, I think we figured out this morning, uh, 11 other outlets that uh, the traffic is probably... I mean, hundreds and thousands of percent above what it was on the forums, but you will still be able to get on there and uh, search as much as you want to, and you'll be able to grab, you know, Patrick's essays as well as other people's writings. Um, and and if, if it comes a time and a place later on where we can kick a forum back off and, and do it correctly where we can get on there, we definitely will. Uh, but now I apologize that we, we are doing this. We just don't have the time and uh, spam uh, is a killer. I think they were t- saying, was it 300 to 1? For every one person joining the forum, that's what the number I was trying to remember yesterday, there was 300 spam accounts to try to get in. Well, what a resource drain. <laughs> yeah. I assume you have to erase those and stay on top of them. And Well, what we need to do is is uh, we we have to get all new software. And I, and I, 
for all you tech guys listening, saying Aaron's full of it or whatever, uh, I'm paraphrasing and probably doing it wrong. Uh, we just need new hardware, new software, new um, antivirus, whatever it's called, new format, and that will fix it. And that may be what we do at some point. It's just right now we're drinking through a fire hose with business in general. And um, once we get everything else handled, we can kind of circle back and, and see what we can do. But as of right now, it'll basically be on idle. You won't be able to join. You won't be able to comment. You'll be able to read whatever you want. Um, but we also have Kafaru's Instagram, my Instagram, Kafaru Insiders, Kafaru Cast, uh, many others as well as the podcast. And, and, you know, as far as the podcast goes, we'll definitely try and get Patrick on more for those of you who want to uh, listen to him talk about your 60 years of experience in the field is that about right about 15 when you were no, wandering around? More, I, was, I really started out i've been solo my most of my life and i started at about 12 with a well, there you 410 go. shotgun <laughs> <laughs> started with small game uh, and uh that's a good place to start uh yeah so anyway, it's been quite a long career yeah, well, it's been an amazing one for, for sure, and it doesn't look like it's slowing down. You're just going to grab a couple fake knees and keep going at it. <laughs> uh, well, uh, well, that's kind of what's going on, so we'll pop this on kind of at the beginning of Patrick's podcast, and uh, I appreciate everybody's support, uh, the overwhelming amount of support for Kafaru uh, going on now. It's it's just amazing, and I'm I'm super happy we, we are um, growing like crazy. It doesn't seem to stop, and, and uh, I'm I'm excited about it, so I appreciate everyone. Uh, me too. Thank you, colleagues, and thank you, uh, all you folks out there that use our gear. We really appreciate it. It's Monday morning, everyone. Welcome back to Kafaru Cast. Um, I'm here with Frank, and we have the man on the podcast that helped build the foundation uh, for the house that we all play in, and that is Patrick Smith, the uh, founder and owner of Kafaru International. <laughs> We finally got you out of the woods. Yeah. Uh, good morning. <laughs> <laughs> How, we were supposed to do this podcast last week, sort of, and I tried to talk Patrick into liquored up, getting a little liquored up before he got on here because he's, well, you're a bit more f philosophical when you're drinking, but I couldn't talk you into drinking this early. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that, Aaron. <laughs> There's a time and place for everything. <laughs> got to drive home after this. Yeah. Oh, Lord. You're... um. What? How old are you now? Seventy-five. And uh, you're about. You got. You got a. You, your wheel finally fell off. You told me this morning you're going to get a, a new knee. And even though he needs a new knee, you still won't come out of the woods, which, is amazing. But uh, you've been scouting right now, right? Yeah, ibuprofen is keeping me, uh, moving, somewhat moving. How bad is it? Well, it has to be replaced. I'll have a titanium one here in June. Yeah, and no, not mobile at all. Like, is it keeping you up at night? Yeah, yeah, it's hard to sleep. Yeah. So, what's the rehabilitation process like after a after a replacement? Is it? A I'll find months? out later today, Frank. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to an orientation class <laughs> yeah. later today. Yeah. See, this is where the you alcohol get, would come into play. You got to liven up a little. You should get some of those. <laughs> have you seen those? Uh, have you seen those Nike legs? The ones they use for runners. With the spring? <laughs> yeah. You should get one of those. Like Maybe the, I ought to just uh, uh, divert to that. Uh, yeah. yeah Some give me one of those. Robotic his, his right leg would be hauling ass. His left leg would uh, be yeah. lagging behind. That's true. <laughs> oh, I can hardly envision that. Oh, my. What was the movie where the British guy and uh, 
Samuel Jackson was the bad dude, and his chick had like sword springy feet. Oh, Did you see a Kingsman, no. the Kingsman. You can be a Kingsman. Uh, so, how many miles do you think you got on that knee? Oh, half a million. <laughs> <laughs> when when did you you we've had you on here before? But when uh, you're from East Texas originally, North Texas, North Texas. Yeah. Not to get away from the podcast. I did not realize how cold it was in North Texas. I just killed an owl dad down there. It was six degrees and snowing with like forty mile an hour winds. It was horrible and, and high humidity too. It was. Uh, we were by, oh, kind of. Amarillo, McLean, kind of in that panhandle. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's yeah. a lot of lot of terrain up there. Holy cow! Yeah. Well, congratulations on your owl dad. That's kind of an exotic. Yeah, I, I never. It looks like the devil. Basically, it's kind of weird looking. Big mane <laughs> coming out of his chest. Looks like Hellboy. <laughs> but uh, what? When did you move to Denver or Colorado? 1970. And then uh, what'd you do from there? What you 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 had a real job for a while? Yeah, I did, but uh, my passion was was backpacking. Uh, every weekend, I was out out in the backcountry. Oh gosh, I also uh, ran a survival school. I owned that for several years. Uh, taught cross-country skiing at Keystone for a number of years. Uh, telemark technique. Uh, uh, ski mountaineering. I got licensed uh, by the Professional Ski Instructors Association as a backcountry guide. So my real passion, Aaron, and you too, Frank, was kind of what we're all involved in right now, the, the backcountry. Uh, just being there, uh, hunting there in particular, what a passion that has been. And it, without a doubt, was the impetus, the impulse that made me start Kifaru. Uh, trying to bring that backpacking experience, because I own Mountain Smith, it was, it, was, it was a mountaineering backpack company, and my intent was to bring mountaineering pack grade performance and load-bearing capacity to fellow hunters and induce them to get out where the elk are, get up among them, I used to say, and do your hunting up there instead of, instead of a jeep. And that was the whole thrust behind Kifaru. And by golly, I think we have helped spread the word on backpack uh, backcountry backpack hunting it's been quite successful yeah we need to tone it down probably to get some people out of the wilderness now because uh, <laughs> it is not what it once was that has occurred to me <laughs> <laughs> the unintended consequences of success how often uh say back when you kind of first started doing the backcountry stuff how often would you run into somebody back there way back um, in the backcountry, almost never. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's not like that yeah, now. Which now it seems like you <laughs> yeah. almost. So it's hard to get away. Everybody's hammering. Man, you just have to go deeper. Uh, and gosh, scouting, which is what I've been doing all winter. Uh, scouting really matters to find those niche locations. And I'm not going to mention any of them, of course. But uh, <laughs> I think you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. Scouting also gives you a chance to carry a pack and get out there all year round, uh, which means you don't have to get in shape for your big hunt every year. You, you use your Kifaru pack to go scouting. Uh, take your rifle and shoot rocks. 
in Robin Hood's case over here, he can shoot whatever you shoot with with you arrows. Shoot that, everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, just imaginary. Oh gosh, uh, uh, snow on a bow, uh, Engelman spruce bow. You shoot for the center of mass of that clump of snow, and you go over and examine the hole you made. Well, that keeps you up to speed on your weaponry and also keeps you physically fit. I think uh, shooting a rock is actually um, a, a holiday in Idaho. They take a day off for rock shooting, don't they, like open season? <laughs> yeah. I've never seen so with many rifles. people shoot rocks with rifles. <laughs> it's like a, it's like it's a, a sport. pastime. Yeah. Well, it makes a smear on it. If you don't break the rock, you can see where the, you hit. And gosh, for long-range shooting, uh, you shoot the rock and then you go out there five or six hundred yards and you see that little smear and you congratulate yourself. Well, that would have been a dead elk. Yeah, well, a lot of people are doing it. So how, um, when, like, have you, I mean, you've been pretty much always been more or less a meat hunter more than anything, even though you've taken some uh, big animals, but your main priority was meat, even all the way down to the marmot, which I've eaten. They're not great. Uh, they are okay, though. You won't die. Uh, they will keep you alive. Oh, I've eaten porcupine. I mean, yeah, everything is meat if you're hungry enough. And <laughs> yeah, I've heard it's a, if, a different rendition of that. Before. <laughs> if, you're, if you're dismantling a porcupine, do it from the bottom. you got to start at the leg, or at least that's, that's what I That's exactly did. right. Good God. It was a lot of work for very little meat. Yeah. Uh, did you, so, but you, from the, pretty much the beginning though, you've kind of crafted, uh, eh, well, I've the only time I've had four course meals in the back countries with you. That's where the the packable stoves came in, being able to cook. I'm uh, more of a uh, like a what's the word? What do you call it? My whiz bang. Uh, you make fun of my stove, my little uh, MSR reactor stove, because uh, I just boil water and throw it in for more of a to stay alive and get food down my throat. You actually cook full-on meals that taste good when you're back there. Have you kind of been perfecting that since the beginning? or I mean, is it something that started or something you picked up in the last 10, 15 years? Oh, from the very beginning. I, my whole philosophy is just living well out in the middle of nowhere, not surviving. Uh, so I did it uh, open fire for many, many decades, uh, you know, a, a tarp, an open fire out front for the warmth and for the cooking. And all my pots, of course, were black. Uh, but when I invented the carryable stove and, uh, and the teepees that kind of went together, uh, the pots got a lot cleaner because I started cooking on top of one of my stoves. And then when you... You've tried pretty much everything, obviously cooking on the stove, but you've done, uh, you had a pressure cooker that was packable, didn't you? I still have it, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) yeah, because you've kind of, what did you, what was it you called the marmot and uh, brookies, the, what is it called, Rocky Mountain? Fish and chips. What the hell was it called? Surf and surf turf. Surf and turf. Surf and yeah, turf. Well, yeah. You remember. <laughs> yeah. Nice going for a Monday morning here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had eaten marmot before you had told me you ate marmot, but I wasn't quite as, uh, what's the word? Uh, excited. Excited about eating another marmot. Um, but you eat them all the time or have. I like them. Uh, it's like pork. You got to eat a little one, though. Don't eat the big ones. Yes, that's true. <laughs> big ones taste like shit. <laughs> yes, uh, up through middle size. 
It's weird with talking about wild game that uh, the outdown. It's so the meat is a lot like eating boot leather, um, even the back strap. But the burger, it's amazing. Yeah, the burger's unbelievable. The flavor of it. Uh, I mean, we've been making even moose. The, so we feed our our dogs raw meat, and little moose likes it more than anything. He won't stop eating it. In fact, he gets pissed if you don't give him enough. What? The let the, I cook the back strap, I could do my jaw got sore. <laughs> it's but too uh, tough. yeah, oh yeah, it's just too tough. But we put some in the crock pot as well as the turkey legs. And uh, the crock pot, you are a huge fan of that because uh, you can pretty much it makes a man look like a cook that's not normally a good cook. <laughs> a crock pot fixes everything. But you like your meals, and these are on the there's a lot of this stuff on the Kafaru you know, forums that. Um, uh, covers a lot of this. You have de- been dehydrating your meals for quite some time. Talk a little bit about that because we get a lot of questions on that. Well, it's a way to take real food uh, for long for a long time, as you as you want to call ramble in the backcountry, and uh, it, 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 it's simply that. You, gosh, if you, if you went on the old forum, you find recipes for dehydrating real food based kind of on game meat yes and uh, it'll last forever and you take that uh, into the backcountry with you here's your your theme Aaron you boil water add it into a, a bowl put put your sleeping bag over it and 25 minutes later it's rehydrated and it's like a stew it's it's real real food now you do it a little bit different than I had before um, we had met when I had dehydrated, I just cooked it, and it and it burns more fuel. But I had uh, I would put it um, in my pot on the stove, crank it up, and have the food and water in there. And as as it boiled, I'd let it boil for a little while, and then just turn it off and let it simmer. Put the lid on it and eat it. You carry a little plastic kind of a ziplock, a ziplock like inexpensive uh, container. And you put the boiling water in the food and that, and then put it in your sleeping bag and just let it sit there for 15 minutes or so. Right, because I'm, meanwhile, I'm making biscuits on mm-hmm. the stove and cooking something else, like you say, that you can cook for a long time. Zatarin's uh, rice dishes are really good. Yeah. So when you, um, it's like, I pretty much just take a bunch of seasoning and olive oil all the time like we cooked frank well we had to get a little creative on your backstrap we actually (laughs) crumbled up the mountain house or the no it was a humble foods meal and then got use that as breading breading (laughs) (laughs) sounds pretty good good, good. (laughs) you you can be pretty creative if you you get uh if you're resourceful enough but what are you usually packing in as far as for seasoning olive oil stuff you know whatever for cooking oh gosh um montreal steak seasoning or chicken seasoning of course olive oil because then then you can prepare the the game that you kill in root like if if there's are grouse or bunnies in the area, and even if I'm elk hunting, I'll take them for the pot. And I know you do it too, Aaron. And uh, so you need olive oil for the for the calories, and also as a cooking agent, and uh, in, in whatever seasonings you like. Time though to put in a plug here for for sous vide technique. Uh, you mentioned how tough that owl dad was. Uh, are you familiar with sous vide? technique the, yeah we the vacuum water bath we've got one um 
as I say, am I from? I'm not. Amy is familiar with it because um, she does everything to these little egg souffle things to meat. She does the egg souffle things. You need to learn that one. It's like eating heroin. It's unbelievable. Actually, they have them at Starbucks. <laughs> the, oh yeah. So oh, she puts bacon <laughs> and cheese and egg, and then it comes out in this little ball. The only problem is it's probably 400 calories a ball, and I eat about eight of them, right? But, yeah, that sous vide thing is the bomb.com. It's it's money. Um, you can get pretty creative with it, though. Yeah, and you can, you can make your shoe tasty uh, and tender. Basically, it's a tenderizing agent, and it's revolutionized my wild game uh, uh, eating procedures. Uh, used to be I'd make a lot of burger because wild game meat is, is so tough. And you, yes, you can use a crock pot, but then it's kind of mushy. Mm -hmm. it's, it's way wet. But with the sous vide technique, you can take any cut of moose or elk or deer meat and tenderize it and then cut it into steaks and, and uh, smoke them and, and uh, treat it more like steakhouse steaks. Gotcha. So it's been a real revolution in my technique. I'm bringing out, uh, uh, well, I'm converting boned out meat. I'm bringing it out in big chunks. And rather than converting those big chunks into mostly hamburger, I'm now make, uh, sous vide-ing them. And I'm getting a lot more steaks and roasts than ever before. Now, on the, this is something we've talked about before, and, and I've battled online about which I've totally stopped because I just not an arguable point but we generally have uh the meat after we take an animal we put it in a you know re regular breathable game bag and we'll hang it up and let it drip and rotate the meat around get everything cooled off but you know packing animals out in um waterproof bags a garbage bag there's been I've seen many people say it ruins the meat but we have three deep freezers full of ruined meat, I guess, because we do it every time. So Me too. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've done it just in a garbage bag and no game bag. You know, you let it cool. I'll just put it on, you know, dead branches where the bark's falling off, let the meat cool and dry, and then I'll throw it in the garbage bag and we'll pack it out. Frank, you do the same thing when we remember yeah. to bring yeah, it Yeah, I think bag. the biggest thing or the biggest mistake people probably make is they don't let the meat cool. And then you throw it in a garbage bag. That's not breathing at all. So, I mean, that's probably where it goes bad for them. But, yeah, I've never had an issue ever. No, and I you've thrown just straight-up quarters in the creek, which is another thing people worry about. Um, and I've had to do that myself. Um, one, it'll help them get cooled off. And two, um, yeah, I've just run out of other options. So you just put it in the creek, and then usually everything stays away from it when it's in the creek. And you only lose about a 16th to the top if you leave it in for a long time. But you've done all of that, I would imagine, haven't you? Oh, sure. Yeah, especially if you're hunting in warmer seasons. Uh, of late, I hunt pretty, pretty late. Uh, in fact, de December last year and this year, I'm going to do the same thing. Yeah, you're like... And the, you don't have to worry about uh, too much heat. It cools off real quick. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely the true winter soldier, because you don't mind the cold. I am not a fan. You hunt when it's freezing cold. Yes, I do. I, gosh, I remember shooting a, what was it, a caribou on a frozen lake in uh, Labrador years ago, and it was... 35 below it was an experimental hunt and 
boy, there was no trouble at all keeping that meat fresh. <laughs> How cold was it up there? You 30, were using, 35 below, though, when I took the shot. You were using sleds, too, or, or pokes? Uh-huh, yeah, to get them, get them out of there. Uh, we, we actually pitched the teepee with nails on, on the inlet of that frozen lake uh, because there just was no, there were no flats spots around the lake it was just gnarly mossy rocks so that was the first time of pitching on frozen uh, water too and it worked yeah that's cool i think i probably would have pulled a hammy for that hunt i don't know if i want to hunt negative 35 i you yep, figure it stove out stove in the tp it makes all the difference yeah exactly. and i shot from the tp door that's yeah, the yeah, that's part that's that's exactly right. out across the lake yeah. <laughs> life doesn't get any better than that <laughs> yeah yeah what year was that when you shot that oh gosh 90 i was already i had invented the teepees and stoves but i still own mountain smith uh, 89, somewhere in there, 1989, not 18. So I was like 12 or 13, Frank. You weren't born one year old. I yeah, one. <laughs> oh, well, welcome aboard, gentlemen. Yeah. <laughs> have you have you ever done anything other than uh, rifle hunt? Have you ever tried bow hunting? You kind of made fun of me when I started that bow hunting was, I don't say stupid, but you were like... Well, it's certainly not stupid with you doing it. You pile them up. Uh, like this year, I think you told me you've killed 28 uh, animals with your stick bow. It's actually uh, much higher than that now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, they're, 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 the pile is getting deeper, huh? Uh, I can't argue with that. However, I can shoot them at 500 yards and you can't. So, uh, yeah, I, I pretty much hunt with a rifle. Now, when uh, did you come out with a rambling rifle? Wow, I wish I'd had time to prepare for this. Let me see, 2001-ish, uh, 2001, 2000 or, or one or 02, somewhere in there. Now, I've seen some stocks from the original where you were just drilling holes, making things as light as you possibly could, and you got it to sub-five-pound scoped. Is that what you Yeah, yeah, the... Uh, the typical rambling rifle was going out of here at four pounds, four ounces with a Leupold two by seven scope uh, in 308 caliber. So it was a it was a wad that was pretty deadly. Uh, speaking of bow hunters, uh, two or three bow hunters uh, that were getting on up there uh, bought rambling rifles to carry along with them on their bow hunts, per, like for sheep in Alaska. And if they couldn't get close enough, they they would deploy that rambling rifle and take them anyway. And uh, that was very they did that very successfully. I packed it like 13 miles into the wilderness and then shot the bear with it at like 18 yards. Um, <laughs> I, I posted when you were coming back out with a new one, you and Ross. Um, yeah, you guys had given me one of the first ones, and uh, I think three barrels because I didn't know what ammo I could buy when I got there, and um, it's lighter than my compound. Um, you didn't even know it was on the, the pack, but I was like 250 away, and then it kind of tucked in. I'm like, oh, I'll get closer, and the next thing you know, the bow hunter in me, I was at 18 yards, and like, <laughs> I better shoot it now, I guess. But uh, pretty pretty unique gun. We well, I just posted a photo on my own page with a bear, and I had that uh, rambling rifle in it, and we had some questions about it and what it was and everything. And I think that one was 4 pounds, 12 ounces, uh, and I think I had a— Man, it might have been a three by nine, 
or I can't remember what was on it. Um, but it was a loophole. I think a BX five is what was on there. But, um, yes, it's, it was just expensive was the only downside to it. Um, just to, to, to build them that light. What was it? Six, 7,000. Oh gosh, we were selling them. Well, they're growing for six or seven thousand now on the aftermarket. We only built fifty of them. Uh, I think you could buy one with one barrel for three thousand, uh, and then they were about three hundred fifty bucks per extra barrel. And I just couldn't get a, a gunsmith that uh, could deliver on time. There would be guys wanting to take them on an exotic sheep hunt uh, like we just talked about and they had to leave and the rifle wasn't ready yet and I, not wanting to take up gunsmithing myself I had plenty else other things to do uh, I finally just just quit making making them so there are 50 of them around and about Hey, I, I had thought at one time or another to talk to Pinch because I bet he could probably come out with one for us, um, especially with technology nowadays. Getting sub five pounds would not be nearly as difficult as it as it once was. Um, Speaking of that, Aaron, there there are a lot of rifles. Uh, Kimber's coming out with some really lightweight rifles nowadays. So the uh, the capabilities are are wider. Uh, than when I was building ultra ultra light right weight rifles, so we have one. There is that too. There's this there's a lot more competition. What we have a uh, what three, is it? Three hundred short mag. <laughs> yeah, I mean technically, I think that's is that our gun or is that my gun? I don't know. Well, this I, is I, an interesting <laughs> conversation. <laughs> we, we have a gun that that came to us that Frank has because I don't shoot any. Do you have that one? Y yes, and. uh that one's five pounds. Yeah. yeah. I think like, it's a Kimber. Yeah. With a scope, five pounds? Uh, no. I didn't think Probably so. Probably yeah. five and three quarters, it's, six pounds yeah. of scope. Yeah. Depending on a, the scope. I have an old uh, Weatherby, 300 Weatherby mountain rifle uh, that was six pounds and one ounce scope. It, it was a serious mountain rifle. Rifles Incorporated built that, didn't you? Yeah. 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 I still have the uh, the chassis. It's on its third barrel now. Uh Gosh, the latest barrel was a Lilja, and the darn thing is shooting five sixteenths inch three shot groups at 100 yards at 3,300 feet per second, 178 grain bullet, and it is serious ray guns. Better than it's ever been. That, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, I when I first started here, um, I have to say, I think you were depressed. I wasn't a gun hunter. Uh, was that right? No, you, you, you were just odd. That, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Good Out of my it. realm of experience. <laughs> the the uh, I mean I'm not opposed to shooting something with a gun. I just I I guess I like to get the shit kicked out of me a little extra, uh, which happens with a bow. Which so much so now I'm shooting a piece of wood for a bow, which makes it even more of a problem. But I grabbed um, I didn't know what it was. You did when I shot that one moose. I grabbed uh, Devin's gun and it was a three thirty eight. It was an Alaskan round. A it was it was it's a a something it's it's like Alaskan something three thirty eight or maybe it's a three hundred 
uh, AK something, maybe. I can't remember the right, the caliber. You're talking gibberish, Aaron. I, I have no idea where you're going with this. <laughs> I'm not explaining it because you knew when I explained it the first time, you listed it off immediately after I had said what it was. Maybe you got a little bit closer to what it really was. Uh, uh, oh, yeah, I'm sure yeah. I did. Um, yeah. I pretty much, the moment that moose hit the ground, the rifle portion of it probably left my mind, but it was, um, uh, it's a custom round, and I don't know if it's, the bullets pushed out or what the hell, I don't know, whatever it is. It's not a straight 338 or a 300 or something done to it. But you're shooting a three, is it a Norma out of the one gun, 338? Oh, a 338 Norma Mag, yeah. That's for long range, really long range. Uh, yeah, I've been ringing that out. I guess my, oh, most recent campaigns have been a 204 Ruger and a 458 SOCOM with a red dot sight on it, and uh, it, it's it's quite the the fire stick. Yeah, <laughs> I like that a lot better than 300 blackout. Yeah. What? How many? How, what kind of an arsenal do you have right now? Well, name a caliber, and I probably have <laughs> <laughs> one chassis that launches that platform. Uh, you have so many guns, you lost a gun at one point. It was up in the office. Did we ever find that thing, the AR? Uh, well, I think we must have. I have a quiver of the damn things. I think what happened is there's too many. Well, we were, we had all those parts, and you had an AR in a cabinet. Yeah, and it wasn't in the cabinet anymore, and you don't come in that often. And you're you're looking at me. I'm like, I didn't tell what I do with it. It wasn't me. No. <laughs> you probably found it at your house. But I probably did. Yeah. That's a that's a good problem to have when you have so many guns, you lose them. I have that problem with optics. <laughs> I have so many places that I stow equipment. You know, here at the office, the garage at home, my truck, uh, basement at home. Uh, sometimes I have to search. Every single location to find things. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what do you think as far as uh, yeah? And you're not you know you know you're you don't really get on like social media or anything like that. But from your perspective, from the outside looking in, kind of just chilling now, what do you think has been the biggest? Um, uh, I guess you could say like maybe game changer or biggest improvement. Um, this being gear, uh, whether it be our gear, weapons, or anything else, uh, since you started hunting. So if you were going to pick, like, one thing that really, like, altered um, hunting for you for the good, what would that be? Oh, uh, well, GPS would have to be one of the top things. Rangefinder right up there you're too. doing good i was wondering if you'd get yeah. them immediately yeah. oh yeah those uh, rangefinder number one thing uh gosh the reason why i shot a 300 weatherby with my hot hand lows for so many years is is because uh i could i didn't have to be exact on the drops i mean out to 600 yards you just hold it on fur and they go down but uh gosh if you're going to shoot further than that now or if you're going to shoot a less speedy uh, caliber, uh, rangefinder is quite a boon. Yeah, you use a rangefinder in archery, or yeah. Oh yeah, even with the recurve, I use it. I get the traditional guys really get pissed because it's not like technically traditional. But my <laughs> thing is, is like, what do you have against hitting what you're aiming at? Is kind of my point. It's right? more ethical too. Yeah, and so I use it for farther, farther shots with the the stick bow. But uh, I think, oh. 
I would I would have to say that uh, as far as um, you know, I the rangefinder has definitely probably changed the game more than anything when you're talking about revolutionizing uh, or at least catapulting the hunting industry. The rangefinder is one. The GPS, um, I don't. Uh, what are you chewing there? What is that, Levi Garrett? Or? <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't sure why it was in that bag. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going mountain man. I'm, 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 this is my pipe tobacco and my chewing tobacco. It's uh, black Cavendish. Uh, That's got to taste like shit. Well, it, it, <laughs> it, it's an alternative to uh, 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 Copenhagen yeah. that doesn't make my heartbeat go erratic because it's, it's not so strong. Uh, so. You want to dip? No, I'm just, the, uh, I might take you up on that. I know. It's there. You know, once in a while. I know every time you come visit, you usually get a dip from You're me. right. I haven't done yet this yet this morning. I'm, I'm tardy on that. You take baby dips, though. I'm still a four-finger guy. I need to slim <laughs> them things down a bit. Um, but I think the, the rangefinder, definitely the GPS – I can nav about as good as anyone without a GPS, but it's nothing worse than finding a brown tarp in the middle of dog hair timber when you've been wandering around in circles all day. Doesn't matter how good you are, you're probably just not going to find it without a GPS, without some serious, serious looking, some serious. <laughs> some yeah, G- well, for like, uh, I've been s- scouting this winter where I, I think the elk are going to be next de- December, which is winter, and I found them, but uh, I've been uh doing waypoints uh for campsites especially campsites that i can pitch my sawtooth and shoot an elk at 600 yards from the door uh so that's a good good thing to to have uh, a gps for and uh i forgot where i was going with this uh, oh you're talking about well land nav in general what ambush points too uh i mean really pinpointing uh I suppose I could hang uh, orange tape, but uh, a GPS is tidier. Yeah. Now, do you use Onyx very yes, much? Yes, I do. Boy, what a, that's another boon. That's huge. <laughs> <laughs> that's really huge. At least it lets you know when you're breaking the law that at least you know you're doing it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I'm, I'm finding niche locations that you were fenced you know well that fence doesn't be jack shit yeah (laughs) it's still legal to be in there and i'll find the old places in the fence where it's kind of broken down and uh, that's my entry point and and that's another gps waypoint right there yeah yeah it makes a it makes a huge difference i still I'm, i'm not totally on the gps game myself i use a little wristwatch one more than anything you use one some but not GPS. Yeah, you don't use one too too. I mean, you have I one. I use on one. Uh, I use one more for like uh, Eastern Colorado hunting. Yeah. Just because there's so much private land out there. Excellent that point. Yeah. And if you're using a wristwatch, you must be using the Fortrex, one of those. Four uh, one. Yeah, I use a six oh two or six oh one. Gosh, I had a, a one oh one, the original. Back one, when for it died. Years back and years and years. Dime. That's a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, I had that thing. I had so many waypoints in it, and I lost it on a deer hunt, and uh, that that was tragic. <laughs> never, never forgive myself for that. Uh, what, what's one of the uh, leaving leaving Kafaru out of it? You can pop that here in a minute. But what was one of uh, gear wise, uh, like 
that catapulted things like, uh, you know, as far as whether it be clothing or, you know, leaving electronics out of it, but more of a, of a standard gear on your body, what was something that you were like, okay, this is a game changer? Oh, for me, it, it was uh, synthetic clothing. Uh, my body doesn't like wool, never did. Uh, I had I wore it because I had to, but synthetic clothing was and synthetic insulated sleeping bags, big big changes, much more reliable, safer, lighter, uh, dry fast faster. So synthetic sleeping bags and garments uh, would be right up there. What about Gore-Tex for footwear? <sighs> when it works. Uh, the answer is yes, and it wor- it's worked for me over the years in boots. Mm-hmm. Uh, not so much in, uh, gosh, uh, high intensity, uh, a lot of exertion uh, conditions. Uh, Gore-Tex, you can still get kind of clammy inside. Yes, you uh, can. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But as far as outer outer gear like rain gear uh it, it's a good idea and because you can be more active than totally sealed rain gear but still it slows you down a little bit uh on the clamminess factor yeah do you no, agree with all uh, that yeah it does i mean i um we work with multiple different you know hunting clothing manufacturers and like gore-tex and footwear is usually good for me for Six months to a year, and yep. then it leaks. About the same. Um, when it starts to leak, I change them out. You know, whether it be, you know, because I wear, I don't usually wear full leather boots. It's usually a partial leather, partial synthetic. Whether I'm poking holes in it or it, it just flat out eventually wears the weld on the inside of the booty, um, you know, it just uh, eventually they, they leak. And, and I, I waterproof them. And then, you know, rain gear wise, there's there's multiple different types of of rain gear now and in event which is what you're wearing um it's more of a backpacker company super lightweight um i think i remember the the jacket you were wearing it seems like it was called bristle comb um or something like that uh but the guys it, event was a a very good product um there's torier which is something uh, one of our competitors use and but you know gore-tex and event are the two big ones anymore i think mine is events a montana company Uh, i can't remember the name of it uh very very good rain gear though yeah Um, it is Uh and uh the one thing i found no matter what you're wearing one uh, it's kind of like my buddy pours concrete for a living and he'll guarantee two things that it's heavy and it'll crack and rain gear is um especially light is it'll rip and it will eventually leak unless it's like heli hansen or something eventually you're going to rip holes in it and it'll it will leak shoulder straps going over the top of it. it's going to push through your legs going busting brush it'll eventually push through the more breathable it is um probably a little bit more susceptible to leaking eventually but definitely it's catapulted from where it was years ago but it there's still uh, there's only so many. I mean, there's parameters to to technology, and, and the lighter you get, um, there's always going to be downsides to going ultra ultra lightweight. And generally, it's um, some type of a durability. And in rain gear packs, it doesn't really you know matter that much one way or another. We well, you built a what was that? Your KU was two pounds eight ounces uh for a 5800 that was two pounds 12 ounces and it was around six thousand uh that was the lightest kind of like the rambling rifles that was the lightest real 
load-carrying, uh, full-size backpack, I guess, ever built. Yeah, well, I carried an entire mountain goat. We stuffed it inside the whole body, gutted it, just to see if it could hold it. Um, and it would hold any amount of weight. Abrasion, since it was, it was made of, um, would be was that thing's Achilles heel, which uh, we still have guys now that are afraid to, I mean, they still use them to this day. The uh, the nature of, of the material it was made from, if you're dragging it across shale, eventually you're going to wear a hole in it. And that is kind of the nature of the beast. When you go that light, that thing would handle any amount of weight with no problem. But abrasion resistance was one of the issues. And you're sub three pounds for a 6,000 cubic inch pack. It's You're not going to have all the bells and whistles and the durability that you would have on a seven pound pack you just can't. Technology isn't there yet, and I don't think it'll ever be there. Um, I agree with you. I don't think it'll ever be there. What what you, you had to do was uh, work with work with it. You had to treat it like what it was. A hell of a light, a lot of weight savings, but it couldn't take the abrasion of, as you say, a seven pound pack. So you just had to accept that and not drag it across shale. Yeah, and we stick right now. We're generally between oh we're around five pounds um you know roughly anyway so you can get up to six six and a half pretty easy if you start adding a ton of pockets on it but you know for me anytime on a pack i start to get pretty nervous when you get below sub five pounds on a on a true load hauling pack for long-term durability uh just because is is and i mean we test stuff constantly you can get you can easily, in in my opinion, it's not a problem to get it to haul weight without an issue, a, a sub five pound pack, but it may have long term durability on the material or you might have you got to rob Peter to pay Paul. You can kind of pick any two you want. Let's say, you know, if you're you're looking at uh, well, when we build commercial buildings, right, or, or houses, there was quality, quantity and cost efficiency. You could have any two of those you want, but you couldn't have all three. <laughs> Same kind of thing when you yeah. go ultralight. Yes, yeah, so there's a balancing act. And you also have to, gosh, have to not, what we've done since we abandoned the ultralights, Aaron, is uh, really lightweight backpacks that are no compromise for our customers. They don't have to take any precautions. They can just go. And it's, it's quite an achievement. It's working pretty well. I mean, we have we get beat out a little bit on total weight, uh, but load hauling we we do not get beat out on. And you know, for me, the extra pound, pound and a half, what I try to that sure is worth it. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm going to get beat up here for probably sounding arrogant, but if you don't kill anything, you really don't have to worry about how well it hauls weight. Um, <laughs> and and when you do. Um, which is really what we focus on. I mean, we here at this table, as well as Bender, if you're packing something out nine miles and that extra pound, pound and a half, gives you a 30% increase in comfort, was it really worth saving that pound? Um, was that pound that big of a difference the rest of the time? Well, if you don't kill anything, it probably wasn't. But if you do kill stuff frequently, that extra load hauling ability is a, is a big deal. That's perfectly said, and that's the reason why we're out there is to bring home meat. I think you should be prepared for that, yeah. and that's what that's the market we're serving. Yeah. Well, and it's kind of funny. At one point in time, I won't bring up any names. Uh, one of our competitors, uh, it, 
at one point in time brought up about you. He said, uh, it's pretty amazing that you don't hunt. And uh, talking about Patrick, it was. Um, oh, really? It. Uh, well, I'll, we'll talk about this after. <laughs> but it, it was one of our main competitors. And I was like, that dude's killed more shit than smallpox. What are you talking about? Well, he had been telling people you weren't a hunter. And I was like, well, I'll be damned. he's got a building, a whole house full of shit. I mean, he's got grizzlies and brown bears and goats and sheep and shit. I was like, yeah, he kills elk every year. Well, kind of, you know, what's perceived or whatever, I was kind of amazed that he's a little bit younger generation. Um, I was like, you know, he, he built the foundation for this house we're playing in as far as bringing the backpacking mountaineering side into to hunting. You just really... Um, for a younger generation, as you got uh, older, not meaning old, older, but meaning as you got up there, social media took over. And you, I mean, you're on social media, but you didn't get the word out there to social media like others had. And I found it interesting because I'm like, do you guys not use Google? Like, I mean, you can search this shit out pretty easy. And you'd wrote basically essays and not books, but almost books on how to do this and survive not just survive but sustain and uh and it's important for me to people know that because obviously that's what the the foundation of our business is built on is sustainment and, and survival um and you've been doing it longer than i've been alive no comment uh <laughs> I, I, I guess they can't see me nodding my head uh, so oh <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, I just think it's important people know that because uh, when you and I had had first met, there was a lot of things. the The biggest difference I noticed between you and I is when I hunt, there is, oh, I don't know, fourteen hours of daylight for bow hunting. And when I say I hunt in general, you know, where you're hunting, there's a lot more darkness, so you've got a lot more time stuck in a teepee uh, for cooking and things like that. Where we you know, it gets dark around 8.39 and you get up at 4 to start, you know, heading back in. There's there's not a lot of time. And I think if I hunted differently as I get older and things alternate, you know, my methods will probably change and cater a little bit more towards yours where now I'm heating up water, throwing it in, eating and passing out. I just don't, I don't have the time because it's bow season. Um, but I will say like when we backpack in, like especially with Amy because she can cook, uh, on these fishing trips, we're living high on the hog. I mean, we um, we li- we live very well. Uh, I just don't do that as much. Where when you go, I mean, it is a true, it, it is true, a true art form. Um, being able to cook a meal like that in a teepee that far back in with what you packed in on your back. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. It's uh, I call it thriving, not surviving. And it's it's I practice that all the time and intend to keep doing it. Yeah, we we went uh, first few trips where we went together. I don't know if you were testing me or what to see if I could actually uh, fish and shoot shit. But I the one I think we shot three four squirrels, a rabbit, and caught a bunch of fish and cooked those up. Um, and I had been doing that since I was a kid. We just weren't didn't have very much money, but it was kind of cool because there isn't that many people that do that. You got to look. Um, there isn't that many people that are capable of. Um, well, we talk about some of the more known people, like on social media today. 
they may never have eaten a rabbit, let alone cleaned one, um, or eaten a squirrel, uh, let alone cleaned one. They go straight for big game, huh? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, it's because, you know, there's no glory in a squirrel. You know, you're not getting a lot of social media likes in a squirrel or a rabbit. Uh, but as far as the art form of putting those on the ground, cleaning them, cooking them, making them into a meal, it's different nowadays. And social media is good in a lot of ways, but it's, it's bad in others where you start talking about sustainment um, or thriving. Um, you know, I don't know even, how many... Even uh, off-seasons, you know, not during elk season, you can still collect grouse and fish and rabbits and marmots and... Yeah, whatever. And, and it's good, good, excellent practice for wielding your weapon. And uh, it's traditional and it's tasty and it's living off the land. And maybe we ought to start stop talking about this or... Everybody will be out there doing it. We started squirrel alive. Yeah, that's funny. Uh, yeah, it it is it is. Um, Amy was uh, what would you say enthralled by? She was Amy, my wife. Amy, she'd never really backpacked, and so now that's like her favorite time of year. I mean, she's talking about it now. It's driving me crazy. Obviously, she she has not slept on the ground quite as much as I have because I don't want to go out there and freeze quite yet um unless i know we're going to catch a bunch of fish and i think we're going to go in a couple weeks and backpack in and she she's just she can't get enough of catching fish and cooking them over the fire and and she loves it which is great to see because that's someone that was never a hunter never really an outdoors person and now is a pretty i don't know she doesn't drive you crazy as much as me but she is ready to roll all the time going backpacking she thinks it's great so good for me i don't have to worry about her pissing her off when i go she goes with us so you're an extremely fortunate man Aaron. <clears throat> yeah <laughs> yeah for your squeeze to go with you that, uh, she just killed her first animal uh i don't think i told you that what was it turkey oh yeah, yeah, with a bow with a bow yeah very nice start terrific congratulations amy yeah she was pretty pumped up she missed a few and then she yeah she she i mean i she was shaking like a catch it and razor blades when that thing came in but she <laughs> she got it and she was like super jacked up so i think i'm hopefully she'll go deer hunting with me now and for whitetail so she's excited she liked it she's excited she's not really into the gun thing i don't know if that's my fault or not she wants to do it with a bow i don't think you can complain about that yeah <laughs> <laughs> she learned about being cold. She was not used to sitting in one spot for five hours. <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, you, um, speaking about being cold, you have always been able to handle the cold, even being from Texas where you think warmer. You handle the cold extremely well. Are you still doing pretty good as you're getting up there in age as far as dealing with it? I know you deal with it a hell of a lot better than I do. Well, as I age, uh, let me turn this phone off, guys. Hang on here just just a second. Uh, cold. That had a heck of a lot to do with me inventing uh, the heated teepees. As I aged, I got less able to, to handle it, so I dealt with it. And it, gosh, it's game changer when you have a heated shelter. Oh, it's a huge deal for so me. That, that's one way I've I dealt with it. The, so you use hot hands quite a bit, don't you? I sure do. Yeah, sources? I use hot hands in my uh, pockets for keeping my, my hands warm for, for shooting in cold weather. Uh, toe warmers in the boots means I can wear non-insulated, heavier boots. And the toe warmers really work well for me. 
and uh, gosh, I'll put them in my parka and in the sleeping bag so I can uh, use a, a lighter, uh, excuse me, a, a less heavy sleeping bag uh, because I've got hand warmers in there with me. Yeah. I got to do the same thing for my feet. My feet get cold. So I got to put hot pockets or hot hands down there. Well, that's an innovation <laughs> that we didn't talk about earlier. Those things haven't existed all that long. I mean, there used to be, gosh, lighter fluid Zippos operated. Uh, they got a little too hot. Yeah. Uh, hand warmers have been quite a quite an innovation. Yeah, yeah. And the, the Zippo lighter fluid, they, they do stink. Um, they smell. Yeah, that too bad where the hot hands don't and they're heavier a lot heavier yeah they have, uh, battery operated like uh socks and long underwear now as well uh, yeah i've got the battery operated socks for the tree stand <laughs> i don't nice. doubt it they're, yeah, yeah, they're nice knowing your your sensitivity to cold that's a good a good thing for you yeah we we talked about it a bit on the barclow podcast i have raynons is what it's called I'll, I'll lose feeling in my feet and my hands to a uh, to a point it's dangerous if you're not i mean i've obviously got a handle on it but i'll get to a point i can't light a lighter or nor walk because i can't feel my feet and uh i've gotten used to it so obviously i i go on some pretty extremely cold uh weather hunts but i i have to i'm very cognizant of what i'm getting myself into to to prepare for it uh the tree stand you know six hours in one spot not moving i got to be pretty prepared for it um and, and you know you get used to the the pain of it and it but it it it, it is kind of a pain in the butt um with wow the, it takes a lot of patience too gosh i've uh, never, never never been able to do that so. no you can't sit still it's uh, uh what do you say what do you i think you i messaged you once that i was in a tree stand and you said yeah i hunt like a coyote I'm not sitting in a tree stand, I think is what you told me. Something like That's that. about right. <laughs> and I still kill stuff, just like a coyote. Oh, yeah. With the, It's more difficult. With, well, I've tree standed and hunted a ton with the bow, but with the, the stick bow specifically, you about have to have a tree stand or a ground blind to shoot a, like a big white tail or even a, a doe. Some of those does are far smarter than any western animal. <laughs> Some of those does from down south, because they're hunted for five months a year. They're pretty pretty edgy um they're cracked out and pretty much you got to aim low expect them from to duck the string i mean they're pretty pretty wound for sound um you know where west the animal isn't as much of the problem as it's the terrain and the altitude and the weather um is what gets you a L- little bit different but both a pain in the ass in different ways frank's first time in the tree stand well, actually, it's comical because I saw you white knuckling the edge of that thing. <laughs> I was, I was holding on to it for dear life. <laughs> and you're not scared of heights at all. Not but. usually, but that 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 stand was pretty high up there, and it was like on a hill. <laughs> it was it was interesting. Oh. I don't think I shot a single deer out of the out of the stand standing. <laughs> that was all sitting that trip. You're expected to stand well, in appara- the thing that a- high up. Apparently, you're supposed to stand and shoot. I ne- I just. Shot yeah. sitting. A lot of some guys shoot sitting. I probably pretty much shoot everything standing. Um, if I have to, I'll shoot sitting. But it's a different world for you because you've never been in a tree stand, have you? Never. What about a ground blind? Uh, gosh, Africa maybe. Yeah, we did a leopard blind. That, that's right. That's about the only time. Yeah, there's African animals all over. You must have went on a killing spree over there. How many animals do you shoot when you were there? I shot 18. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, a lot different from North American hunting. It's uh, a lot more shooting. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah. What you did you use just the one rifle when you were there? No, I took a three seventy five H and H for Cape Buffalo, uh, and I took a, my three hundred Weatherby uh, for planes game and long range stuff. Did you shoot a Cape Buffalo when you were over there? I did. Yeah. How close? 25 yards. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Did dump it over pretty quick? Yeah, he went right over. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I keep, Randy and Denny keep bugging me to go over and hunt them with a stick bow. Um, a Cape Buffalo? With yeah. A, oh, my God. Yeah. Well, I'm sure most guides don't, don't uh, it's frowned upon. Like there's a lot. There's a couple of places. There's some places in Alaska they won't let you in with a stick bow. Like, they won't let you come hunt what about that in, in africa aaron have you found anybody uh... everyone that nobody dislikes stick bow hunters i say everyone most people i've talked to because I, I have people message me to to come over asiatic water buffalo cape buffalo okay rhino um that one guy just was getting a hold of me that's got my mountain lion and the wolf and everything uh to go on a hunt over there it doesn't as you know it doesn't really trip my trigger over there um some of the animals do, but I have no ambition to shoot a, a rhino or a giraffe or an elephant. Um, I don't me, have anything against either, it. Me either, and I didn't. That's, I, I don't know why. It's just not to my taste, so to speak. And and I know that I saw this big thing about that rack em up guy shot that giraffe. Um, so I've, I've become a bit of a giraffe expert reading about this stuff. So the old bulls whip neck whip the shit out of the young bulls and and the old bull won't doesn't breed right that rhinos are this every animal's the same way but they beat the hell out of all the young bulls so they can't breed and that's the animals that we go over generally are supposed to and pay a ton of money for as americans that goes to conservation and that goes to the local tribe and the local village as well as all the meat so it's actually a, a good thing although i really don't want to shoot jeffrey the giraffe from toys r us it actually is a hugely beneficial for um, the local tribes or local villages because they get all the money and they get all the meat. Um, and I guess well said. You're damn absolutely good. right. Yeah. And the one I had, somebody else should do it. I just don't have any desire. Yeah. You don't either to shoot this no, giraffe. No, I I don't. I mean, I don't have anything against it. But I, not to get off subject here, but I know your stance on a lot of this stuff. So when I talk with anti hunters or get into this argument i think people you know you need to understand you you can't stop time right you just can't do it we're all going to die animals are the same way and if a specific animal hits an age to where he is beating the piss out of all the other younger bulls uh not allowing them to breed it's actually a benefit to that species to shoot that specific animal whether it's endangered or not it's about to die and it's causing problems for the further advancement of that species. It's counterproductive yeah. for him to continue to exist. To list. And yeah. Gosh, you're twisting my arm here a little bit. <laughs> I, like, I tell you what, I mean, getting in this argument with people, I'm like, look, I understand a human may be ending its life six months earlier, but if it's during breeding season, he's actually helping the species because he is going to be able to, the other animals will be able to breed, and this guy's so big, old, and mean, He's causing issues, and he's going to die. So why not, if we get some American to pay a ridiculous amount of money to go shoot it that goes to conservation or the local village or tribe, why not? I can understand if you're shooting small ones or babies. Yeah, there's an argument there. And uh, I don't think people really 
common sense doesn't seem to ever win out when it comes on this conversation, this specifically, but it is what it is. That's total squirrel hole there. <laughs> All right. That, that as an aside, uh, I didn't know you'd done research on giraffes, and I've learned something here this morning. Uh, mostly I started because I wanted to watch them fight, and it went down a squirrel hole for a couple weeks. Have you ever seen them neck whip? Yeah. Sweet yeah. baby Jesus. It's violent. And then I guess so once they flip them, uh, a giraffe can't get back up. Um, <laughs> once they flip them on their back, they have a hell of a time getting up once they're flipped because their legs are so long and they're so top heavy with that head so it's pretty crazy watching the neck whipping and those old bulls get so big and mean they just beat the piss out of all the other giraffes it's pretty pretty wild but anyway and you've seen videos of this this happening I I oh you need to when we get off you need to google giraffe neck whip fight jesus <laughs> it you want to talk about like two unicorns flying around fighting each other? You just don't imagine what it's like. And they wing back full speed and wrap their necks and hit each other and wrap them up. And the idea, to they once they flip them, that's the, the winner, basically. Um, and I'm sure there's going to be some dude that lives around giraffes that's going to totally blow my speaking out of the water here that will know far more than me. But I was I was pretty amazed with how that works over there on the giraffe side of things but i'll get right on it <laughs> <laughs> anyway well man we've we're about in an hour here and i know you you got to go you've got other engagements but um we got to start getting you on at least once a month people bug us all the time to get you on here and and uh shoot the shit about hunting and and uh, the outdoors but i i can't thank you enough one for coming on and but for two for everything else and uh, everybody should definitely have a big thank you for for Patrick, because he has certainly helped uh, pioneer and catapult uh, backpack hunting with everything you've done. Well, I appreciate that. I, I guess I'm I'm a little bit sorry that it's gotten so popular, but uh, <laughs> uh, progress happens. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's happened a lot here in Colorado, I tell you. Well, thanks, though. Thank, Thank you, you, Patrick. Appreciate on. it. Thanks, fellas. I've enjoyed it. Yeah.